All right, so last week we continued our Proverbs series by extending our understanding of what the fear of the Lord is. The name of God is Yahweh. God is timeless. He's never changing. He is never failing. He always was, always is, and always will be. We can trust in God with our whole heart, which was the encouragement of Solomon, because God is the only one who stays the same. You have walked into this place today, been saying this for a couple weeks now, and whether you like it or not, you are a different person than you walked in. Because just the very fact of what sin and decay has done to your body over the last hour or so, you are now older and decaying more than you were an hour ago. You always change. God remains the same. And that's one of the biggest arguments for why you need to trust in God with your whole heart over yourself. We can lean on God's understanding more than we can lean on our own. Fearing God, we discovered in previous weeks, it's not about being afraid of God. Okay, what is God going to say? What is God going to do if I do this, so therefore I'm too scared to do it? But you know in your heart you really want to do this thing. Fearing God is more than that. Fearing God is knowing and loving God's presence so much that you're like, God, you have reign over all the affairs of my life, from my romance to my children to my job, to my hobbies. I believe in your presence and your promises so much. You have full reign over all of these things. I'm just clay. You're the potter. And you shape what you want to shape with my life. We learned that a wise life is a truly satisfying life. Now, some may disagree, and some may think that a satisfying life and a Godward life that they clash if I really want to live a satisfying life in these years that I have, it's going to be counter to what God tells me to do with life. Many believe that. And you may be here today, even though you're doing the actions of religion this morning by sitting in a church instead of kayaking or having brunch, you may believe that too. You're performing the religious action without the heart motivation. But we concluded that this life is foolish, right? We saw that what we hold closest to our hearts, whatever that is, is going to be our foundation. And the wisdom of Proverbs argues that whatever it is that you hold closest to your heart is actually your functional God. We are all religious creatures, even those who claim to be agnostic. It's just that maybe they deify self or deify something else and put it over God. Everyone truly in their heart of hearts is a theist. It's just human nature replaces and swaps out God with something else. We heard Solomon call on us to write God's word on our hearts. The wise are not content. They are not satisfied with God's word only being written on tablets of stone or on papyrus or bound in leather with paper today or it just being on our phone. The wise are not content with this. Instead, the wise have this God-given desire for God to write his word onto our hearts. And we saw the wise acknowledge God by trusting in him with all that they are, with their marriage, with their family, with their kids, with their wealth, whatever happens at work and hobbies and friendship. We don't lean on our own understanding above God. God's. We let God set the path, and then we pray, God, make us so weak that we must depend on your strength to walk this path. 
we learn that we turn to God with the weight of who we are. That's the wise life. That is the Christian life. And we learn that the general promises of Proverbs, that they acknowledge both the beauty of this life and the brokenness of this life, right? We acknowledge and Proverbs acknowledges that sometimes in life, one plus one equals negative 100. Or you take two steps forward, right? In this life, we want to strive to fear God and to reject the natural tendency for you and I to to do what's natural for us, which is to be foolish, to be fools. And I think Christianity truly, and I think only begins when we realize that compared to God in the presence of God, that I'm a fool and that you are a fool. That true wisdom begins by acknowledging our foolishness, that we think we are wise in our own eyes. So today, we continue Proverbs 3. We're going to look more deeply into what trusting in this Yahweh this creator God, this timeless God, what it looks like, what leaning on this timeless one looks like, and how it impacts our lives. So let's get to our proposition, and we're going to see that those who fear God, in that true Solomon understanding of fearing God, those who fear God will find refreshment and security in him. That's why we sing in our liturgy, all of our fountains are in you. Seeing and experiencing God's presence and his word will put you on a lifelong path, a Godward path to a wise and a satisfying life. But on the other hand, we know through the reading of the scriptures and the example of our Lord that the Christian life is not all rainbows, it's not all glitter, and it's not all sprinkles. It's not all whipped cream and a cherry on top. It's not all gold stars. Both the wise man and the foolish man, they both experience adversity, rains and floods and winds that howl and threaten their homes and the foundation of their living. However, the wise man's foundation is strong enough to sustain all of that adversity, all the winds, all the rains, all the floods, because this wise man doesn't build on himself or build on tomfoolery. He builds on hearing and acting on the words of Jesus. Time and time again, the wise, which I think is just synonymous with the real Christian, the Christian will find refreshment in their lives when they are weary. And time and time again, the wise, the Christian, will experience security in God when adversity comes their way and strikes all that they have and all that they love. The call to wisdom is to lean on God and to lean on his understanding above your own in times of prosperity and in times of adversity. When the brokenness and the fallenness of this world crushes you, when it bends you, you will find God to be your refreshment. And when you lean on God's understanding above your own, you will find yourself Locked down, tied down, secure in him. So secure that it unleashes a flood of generosity. And that's where we're going in our points this morning in these several verses that we're going to look at today. Let's get started with first point. This is, this is the one about refreshment. So if you are weary and dry, you've been doing religiosity, and you have turned your heart off to God, I pray listen up because there's the promise of refreshment that's here today. So in the first point, you're going to see that you are to find refreshment. It is available. But we find refreshment by trusting God 
above your own wisdom. So what I'd like to argue towards you right now and have you to consider is that maybe in part you feel so dry, so spiritually dry with God. He's just a page. This is just religious action, in part because you are your own God, that you elevate what you think above what God thinks, and that is why you are so dry. It may perhaps be. I would ask you to consider that in these next several minutes as we go through our first point. In verse 7, we see Solomon address those who trust in themselves, who lean on themselves, who do not acknowledge God in all their ways, which is what we looked at last week. The wisdom of Solomon, who is a king and a wise man himself, is to abandon yourself. You want to get wise? Forget yourself. Consider yourself a fool and follow someone greater than you. It's just that the gospel and the wisdom of the Bible asserts that you are not the wisest one out there, that you are not the strongest one out there. Neither is our government, neither is any celebrity or social media voice, your own internal voice, or the voice of a parent or the voice of a spouse, though there are relationships we have to all of those voices. The wisdom of Proverbs and the gospel is that there is one voice above all. And when you yield to that and give control to that, it's scary, but in the end, there's refreshment. And we'll see this time and time again this summer. Let's begin with verse 7. Solomon says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. So I want to pose verse 7 as two questions to you. How do you today turn from evil? Change the direction. Evil is in this way. How do you stop and turn? And then, how do you reject the temptation for you to be wise in your own eyes? The answer to these questions is found with the key of Proverbs, which we've already looked at in chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you see God as he is, who he says he is? Or do you see God the way that you want to see him? The fear of the Lord is the theme, the motif of Proverbs. And we are going to be coming back to this idea of fear of the Lord time and time again. Once we finish chapter 3 and we jump into different topics, womanhood, motherhood, fatherhood, what it means to be a man, romance, money, how you use your words, what it says about your heart, all the wisdom of Proverbs, it's going to come back time and time again that the difference maker in how you view and how you live off of these topics is do you fear God? And fearing God is, do you think he is wiser than you? You see him for who he is. He's omniscient, and you're not, and I'm not. So will you acknowledge that God is stronger than you? Will you acknowledge that God is wiser than you? Will you lean on his understanding and not lean on your own when you don't know what to do about something? When something is so big, so hard, so difficult, so heartbreaking, you're going to yield to what God wants versus what you want to do in the situation. All of that answers the question of do you fear God or are you your own God? Because you can be religious and be in a church in America and still serve yourself and have your own little version of a God. The issue of fearing the Lord, when it comes down to it, is really about control. Who are you going to yield control of your life to? Yourself? Another person, or Yahweh, who never changes and never fails, who is timeless, who was and is and is to come. 
If you answer the question and say, it's not God. If you seek to be in control of your life, your time, your money, your relationships, the ultimate question to ask you today is, how is that going for you? There's a little heart check right now. Are you exhausted yet from trying to be stronger, trying to be wiser, trying to be perfect, trying to be more resourceful than God? And it's here that we're going to be connecting all summer to the different wisdom spots of the Bible, from Job to the Psalms to Ecclesiastes to Jesus himself. Remember what God said to Job when he got to the lowest point of his suffering. Lost his children. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. His wife said, this is the wisdom of his life. Curse God and die. The wisdom of his friendships were, you're a sinner, and that's why you're suffering. Just repent. And if you really did repent, God would reward you. When he got to that lowest point in life, and he started to regret himself even being born. And if you've been suffering long enough, you've been there with Job. God shows up in a whirlwind, and he asks Job, do you have power like me? We have to think about the closing of the book of Job. He says something like, Can you, did you create something as powerful and majestic as Behemoth, as Leviathan, as Orion? Were you there to lay the foundations of the universe, creating gravity, gravitational pull, and black holes and constellations? Was that you? And of course, the answer is no. That's why Job said at the end, I retract, I repent. I'll go back to the ashes. But God doesn't char him. He restores and renews all that the locust had eaten. Fearing God in part means that you acknowledge that you're not God. Now, that's easy to say. But when it comes down to making that choice, that decision in life, what you want versus what God wants, that is where you prove your Christianity. And that is where you prove whether you're wise or whether you are a fool. But the good thing about the body of Christ and what separates us from every other religion in the world is that we boast in our weaknesses, right? We're okay with not being strong. We are okay with acknowledging, I was foolish about this or that or the other. Fearing God in part means that you see God for all that he says he is, and you live life as like God is with you. You see, that is what set the wisdom of Joseph in Genesis, the son of Israel, apart from others. Wherever he went, whether it was his brothers throwing him in a pit, or whether he became second command in Potiphar's house, or whether he was thrown in prison, whether he was basically prime minister of Egypt, Moses tells us that Joseph had the realization that God was with him. And what was the result? Truly wise life, right? In times of abundance, he stockpiled. And in times of poverty, he actually gave away, which is totally counter to American culture and economics. When there's abundance, we spend, spend, spend. And then when there's poverty, we stop giving. But Joseph is the wise life. In American life, really, it's not. Fearing God is the antidote for being wise in your own eyes. Fearing God is how you turn from the crooked path to the straight path. Let's take a look at verse 8. Because we're going to see the long-term effect of those who truly fear God. Those who truly live a wise life. Or the true Christian. Solomon says, it will be, it meaning the fear of the Lord, will be healing to your body 
and refreshment to your bones. Now that sounds good this morning, right? We've got to clarify what this means and what it doesn't mean. Because this verse appears to promise physical health and physical prosperity if, there's a condition, if you follow him. But we realize Job lost his health, right? Jesus was beaten and crucified. The apostle Paul was physically abused numerous times, beaten with rods, lashed, shipwrecked, multiple times just for being a Christian. So we need to clarify what Solomon is really saying here. Let's do it for a moment. Those who fear God will find, you see that? Will, future, will find healing and refreshment in God. Job lost everything. But if you notice, if you've ever read the book of Job, you notice that God actually never gives him the answer to his suffering. Only you and I know this biblical irony as the reader had nothing to do with his sinfulness or holiness. Had nothing to do with it, right? Job lost everything, but at the end, he gained yet again. If you think about the life of Ruth and Naomi, Naomi lost so much. Two sons, her husband. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which was Hebrew for pleasant. She said, call me Mara. Mara was Hebrew for suffering. I've lost so much. I don't even recognize my name anymore. I don't even recognize myself. But by the end of Ruth, she is holding on to that sweet baby Obed. And so close to this baby that the ladies of Bethlehem thinks that Obed belongs to her. Jesus was crucified and resurrected three days later. Paul was physically abused but found contentment and grace and strength in Jesus. Even if he prays to God to take the thorn out of his flesh, he has experienced that in his weakness that Christ is his strength. This implies a couple things, Heritage. For fearing God to be a healing to your body, this necessitates that you are wounded and in pain. Do you see that? It clashes with the health, wealth gospel that says if you're devout, you're going to be in good health. For fearing God to be a healing to your body, it necessitates that you know what it feels like to be wounded, that you know what it's like to be in pain. The Christian life isn't a promise of unconditional, unrestricted physical health and prosperity. So that means if you are in poverty or if you are sick or hurt somehow, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're struggling because you're a sinner. That's what this means. Or that you don't have enough faith in God. The Christian life is trusting that God knows what he is doing even if health is threatened. Even if you don't have the bank account that you want right now. You have to remember that Job once said, Though you slay me, I will hope in you. The Christian life is knowing that there is a day coming, will be, when God will renew the body to never suffer again. And we read about this in Revelation 20. No tears, no sin, no sorrow, nor no mourning ever again. The Christian life is looking to Jesus 
who took on our ultimate wounds, our ultimate pain, our ultimate suffering, because Jesus took the stinger out of death. Isaiah says, by his wounds, you are healed. Solomon says, fearing God is refreshment to the bones. Now, once again, for fearing God to be refreshment to your bones, this necessitates that you know what it feels like to be impoverished. You know what it's like to be hungry. And you know what it's like to be thirsty. The promise of Proverbs are not unconditional, unqualified promises. It's just a glimpse. It's just a smack roll, an appetizer of what life will look like at the eschaton and beyond when there is no sin, no brokenness in this world. Those who fear God, those who live wisely, they know their hunger and they know their thirst. They know their brokenness, and they know their pain. And they turn to Jesus for those things, and not to other things. And that is a distinguishing mark between a wise life and the life of the fool. The Christian life and the non-Christian life. We know our hunger and our thirst is met in Jesus. Amen? Heritage. Ooh, you're like pin drop because it's just like pins and needles of excitement or oh thinking good we know our hunger and thirst is met in Jesus because Jesus is living water and bread of life fearing God is seeing God for who he is bread of life water to the soul all of this necessitates that those who fear God have come to the conclusion that at one point in our lives, even if it's today, right now, present, live in this moment, that we're fools. All this necessitates that if you do not believe that you are a fool, that you are wiser than God over blank, then you do not fear God. You're just doing religion. All of this necessitates that those who fear God once can say, I once rejected God. I once leaned to my own understanding for support in this situation. For those of you who lean on yourself or others more than God, once again, I have to ask, how is it going for you? Are you exhausted enough yet to know that this is not the path that you should travel? We pray to God and ask him, change our position and change our heart's posture about Jesus. That he is all wise, that he is all strong, that he is all knowing, that he is all resourceful. That if he can resurrect himself from the dead, whatever situation that you're controlling, if you yield your understanding and lean on his, you will find refreshment one day. And you will find security one day. If you trust God's heart with your whole heart, if you lean on God's understanding above your understanding, Jesus will be refreshments to your body and healing to your bones. And with that, let's jump into our next point. Point two, you're going to see that we got to the refreshment. Now it's time for security. We are to find security in the most nonsensical, non-capitalistic way, which means non-American way. By honoring God from your wealth. 
In point two, we see what Solomon's call to fear the Lord does in the wise, or I would argue the truly Christian. It makes them more secure. And that security leads them to honor God with their wealth. That's going to be Solomon's wisdom in just a moment. But we have to acknowledge that Solomon's wisdom, biblical wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus, runs against the grain of American culture, American consumerism, American economics. Typically, America teaches you to take more than you give. Where are the calls right now? It's not Christmas time. It's not Thanksgiving. Where are the calls on social media to give? Where is it? Right? But you know it's going to crank up right around Thanksgiving time. Typically, we are taught we are to stockpile more than we send out. That's the American way, right? That's why we have banks. It's a white, European, modern notion to have banks. These ancients didn't have it. We honor our ideas, our plans above God, and then we're wondering why it's disastrous, like a bomb went off in our lives, right? But all of this is foolish. You heard the wisdom of Jesus in our Untying the Knot series, right? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two gods. Wealth has a function in your life, just like relationships have a function in your life, but they cannot be ultimate. They can't be the ultimate reason why you live, move, and breathe and exist. If they are, that's your God, and God is not. And you're either one day going to be put in a position where you have to demonstrate love for one and hate for the other. You love your idea and what you want to do, and God takes the back seat, which proves you don't fear God. Solomon tells us why. Let's look at verse 9. Solomon says to honor the Lord, there's two, two things we have to look at. From your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Those who fear the Lord honor the Lord. Now, let me tell you what Solomon meant when he used the original Hebrew word that's our American English word for honor. And let me contrast it with American culture first. In America, we typically take honor to mean to be respectful. Yes, in the South, it's yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Just like in Japanese culture, it may be to, to bow in a certain way and to a certain point. It's a sign, a gesture of honor. But that's not what the ancients meant. Because we can say this and we can do this, and it doesn't reflect what's going on right here, right? The Hebrews meant something far different by this. This word honor literally just meant something that's heavy. So if you want to describe anything, whatever load you're carrying is heavy, and you're Hebrew, this was the word you used. It means something that is weighty. It means something that is heavy. It's kabud. That's the word. For the ancients, it meant to honor someone meant you gave the other more weight than you gave yourself. You gave the other more value, more heaviness than you gave yourself. That's what it meant to honor the Lord. Not just say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, or do this. But to give that other 
more weight, the fullest weight of who you are. Honoring the Lord, therefore, means that you give God more weight, more value than you give yourself and you give to others. That is, once again, the distinguishing mark of whether you truly fear God or if you are a fool. If you give God the greatest weight, the greatest voice in your life. It's about seeing God as your all-surpassing value that therefore defines what to do with your romance, what to do with your kids, and the family you're building, and your money, and your job, and your hobbies, and so much more. Honoring the Lord is about yielding your life to him because you hold him in higher esteem than you hold yourself. So let's be safe and fair and conclude that you and I are raised in a culture that does not value the word yield. And if you need a simple expression and illustration of this truth, on your morning commute, when you come onto the interstate and you see that yield sign, let's see how the modern American yields. How I yield sometimes, right? <laughs> I'm glad I really don't drive anymore. It's, it's great. Because in America, yielding to another is a sign of weakness, but not in the East. Not in the East. It's only in the West that we think this way. For those who fear God, it is a sign of weakness, but yes, it's also the sign of our hope, the sign of our strength, that it's God's strength in us, not our strength ourselves, God's understanding in us, not our own understanding. Christians are okay with this, and I have not met a religious person from another faith that has ever said something like this. The Christian says, I'm okay with being weak. I'm okay acknowledging that I'm a sinner, that I've screwed up in this area. Isaiah said, I'm an unclean man. I have an unclean heart. I have unclean lips. See, Christians have no problem saying that. But then we're equally okay with saying that in my weakness, it's God that's strong in me. Yeah, I have unclean lips. I have an unclean heart. But God is working in and through me and changing me. So those who truly fear God honor God with wealth. That's the point of Solomon today. And it's going to be a point that sporadically throughout the summer that we are going to look at because it's one of the topics. Because Jesus really tells us best that really what you treasure says really where your heart is, right? So we ask or we declare that how a person handles wealth, it demonstrates whether they fear God it demonstrates whether they trust in God with all of their hearts and whether they lean on God's understanding or if they lean on theirs. Solomon calls the reader, which the original reader was Hebrew, Jewish. In the East, completely different than America. We must remember this. Solomon calls the reader to honor God in two ways in this verse. From their wealth, then we see, and from the first of their produce. Two ways to honor God with wealth. Let's contrast this for a moment with 21st century America. We are Western. We are sophisticated. We are industrialized. We are Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Right? 9 to 5. Is that Dolly? See, being married to Tisa. Learning my country music. 
We work for others to earn a piece of paper that says something. Or we get into the place in society right now, we are so wise, so sophisticated, we don't actually get a piece of paper anymore. It's digital. You can't see it. You can't touch it, which by the very definition is the agnostic and the atheist. It doesn't exist because I can't see or touch it. I can't prove it. Yet we believe in it. We put our hope in it. Digital currency, right? It's crazy. Even more than this, we don't hold on to that currency. We give it to an institution by which we don't know their morals. We don't know their values. We don't know if it's really there. Think about Silicon Valley recently, right? All of the Fortune 500 companies put in their wealth in Silicon Valley, and it's gone. Government has to nanny and nurse things back to health. We put our hope in so many places with our wealth but the Lord Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Like digital currency, I'm not going to give it to you. It's just there in the cloud somewhere. And you can exchange with it. Israel in this time, Eastern, agrarian. They didn't operate nine to five. Work was 24-7, right? They didn't put wealth into symbols and forms of currency. They understood their children. They understood their land and their livestock as their wealth. Our currency is paper and coins. And their currency, what made them wealthy, was people, livestock, land, produce. They didn't put their possessions in a bank. They put it in their barns. They didn't give it to bank of this institution. They dug a hole and put their treasure in a field for another to stumble upon. When Solomon says, honor the Lord from your wealth, in part he is speaking to the things that you have already amassed, what is already in your barn. This would be the land that you live on the livestock you tend to, what you have stored in that barn or buried in your backyard for them. Wisdom is honoring God and giving greater weights, giving greater value with and by all that you already have. But wisdom is also honoring God with the first fruits of your current labor. God commanded Israel to give the first fruits of their produce to God. In Hebrew, they called it the tithe. It's a Jewish thing, a Jewish expectation, a Jewish norm, but it also wasn't their exclusive and only giving. You see it here, too, right now, from the barn and from the produce, right? They gave the first fruits of their figs, of their pomegranates, of their olives, of their grapes. They gave the first calf that was born in spring. The point is, the Hebrew yielded the first of all that they were producing, all that they were creating. They gave their first to God. Contrast that with America. We don't give the first, we give the last. But then we wonder why the gospel is moving first in other parts of the world than in America. It's crazy, right? But the gospel is upside down like that. Solomon says, honor the Lord in these two things. In what you already have, the barn, 
and then what you are working towards, your produce. Giving God more weight than you give yourself in these two areas really demonstrates if you fear God or if you lean on your own understanding. See, God is more valuable than what you have and what you are amassing and what you have already amassed. Now, this is opposite to our culture because generosity is an afterthought. Where are the calls from social media to all the nonprofits right now? Because there's no fire to put out. There's no earthquake. There's no hurricane. There's no tsunami. Where is a call to generosity, America? Right? We're waiting for Thanksgiving. We're waiting for Christmas. Generosity is an afterthought. It's the dollar bills that you have left in your wallet today. After you've done all of the spending that you have wanted to do, then whatever is left is for God. Now, once again, if you treat romance like that, you will not be in a relationship for long, right? If you work like that for an employer whom you're supposed to slave for, you will not be an employee for long. You'd give them the leftovers. Why do you treat God like that? Solomon says, it's because you're a fool. It really is because you don't fear God. Solomon says it's really because you trust your own understanding about wealth above God's. But then you're confused as to why you are the way that you are and where you are in life. This is a reminder for us that this is not our home. We're just uh, passing through, right? It really clarifies who and what our ultimate allegiance is owed to. Christians are not at home in this world. It doesn't matter if it's Branchton, Tampa, Hillsborough County, Florida, the Southeast, the Bible Belt, America, North America. It does not matter. We are not at home. And this also means, therefore, that we cannot be fully and totally elite, given our allegiance to left or right, to conservative or liberal, to Democrat or Republican, because the Christian ultimately, at the end of the day, is a monarchist, right? We yield ultimately to one person and one person alone, and that is a king, and his name is Jesus. That's our ultimate allegiance. And Solomon says that's wisdom. He is the most influential king of the world in that time, and even he yields himself to a truer king. The Christian is loyal and gives greater weight, greater value to what their sovereign says than any other voice in their life. So now let's get to a promise in our final verse, verse 10. <laughs> we got to clarify this one too. Fear the Lord with your wealth, verse 10. So here's what happens then. Your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. That sounds good, right? We see two benefits of fearing God and honoring God with wealth. When you first give to God of what you are amassing and you first give to God of all that you're producing currently, Solomon says, God will fill your barn. To a Hebrew family, that sounds good. I only got two boys and one servant that's agreed to work for me. We don't got much in the barn right now. This is very appealing right, to a Hebrew. When you give out of the new wine that you are pressing, God says, I will overflow your vats. 
once again, the ancients drank so much wine because water was in short supply. This was their lifeblood to get through. This was their water. This was their aquafina. Now let me tell you how some have misinterpreted and misapplied verses like this. They take it to mean an absolute promise of material and financial prosperity. So taken together, these two points, there is something real out there that's called the health wealth gospel. That the message of the Lord Jesus will make you healthy and it will make you prosperous. We really have to take a hard look at that. A hasty generalization is developed by this. That piety leads to plenty. If I honor God, he will cause me to prosper. If I do one plus one, it'll equal two. That's what the health, wealth, gospel preachers say. Go live your best life and make sure you buy my New York Times bestseller while you're at it. But this is not the gospel, nor is it the goal of Proverbs. This is merely transactional religion. This is making religion into a God. If I show up to church enough, if my casserole is just as yum yum as it was last week, God's going to take care of me. Proverbs is God's wisdom to a life well lived, a straight and ordered path. But you and I need wisdom because our path right now, on our own, left to ourselves, is crooked and broken. Only God can make it straight, which is why Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Proverbs speaks to the beauty and the brokenness of this life, the promises and the pain of this life. Proverbs acknowledges that because humanity is broken, people will seek to extort you. So you can walk out of this place today and be completely closed off ears, closed off heart, closed off eyes. Right? Remember those three monkeys, you know, that do this? That could be you today. Keep filling your barn. But Proverbs acknowledges the real humanity of life. And I want to share a couple of verses with you. Proverbs 3. Just, I don't know, 20 verses later? Listen to what Solomon says. It's a call. He says, don't withhold good from those whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go, come back tomorrow. I'll give it to you when you have it with you. Proverbs 11, verse 1 and verse 18. Solomon acknowledges there's a false balance in humanity, right? A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. That the wicked, they earn deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. Both of these Proverbs can put together the promises and the pain, the promise and just the humanity of this life. Proverbs lets you know there is injustice in this world. There is disparity in this world. There is inequity in this world. People will seek to withhold good from their neighbors, and sometimes you may be that neighbor. You've been amassing in your barn, and someone is out to extort you. People will do business with false pretenses and false balances. The goal in this business practice is for them to gain at the expense of your loss. That's humanity. That's reality. Sometimes we will get extorted. 
Which is why Christians look to God and to God alone because he's Yahweh as our ultimate avenger. Not to a superhero flying in the sky or a Supreme Court decision, but to the ultimate sovereign avenger of all things. This means that the promises of Proverbs are not unqualified promises of financial prosperity and physical health. These promises are meant to give you a sneak peek, right? You know, sometimes the back of a cover of a book gives you a sneak peek or the inside cover. My mother-in-law, she, that doesn't, like, she's not satisfied with that. She gets a brand new book. She reads the end first. I don't understand that. Sorry, Mom. I put you on blast. I didn't even ask you. It just happened. Limit the off-cuff comments. Limit the ad-lib. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Trust God's work in the manuscript. Get back in my head. Okay, reel it in. But it's already out, right? These promises give you a sneak peek as what life is going to be like in the eschaton, where there is no such thing as false balances. There is no such thing as people trying to deceive to earn. That's what the eschaton is going to be like. It's not going to be like that here. There's no such thing as utopia this side. It is the secularist longing because they're made in the image of God for eternity expressed. Dystopia is really the reality of this life. These promises will show what life is like in the eschaton when there's no more sin and no more brokenness. But then here's the promise. God will secure those who honor him, those who fear him, those who give to him more weight, more value than they give themselves. They will have all that they need from their barns to eat. They will have all that they need in their vats to drink. So how do we apply Solomon's call today? Solomon says, refreshment is found when you trust God above your wisdom. Solomon says, security is found when God is weightier than you in your affairs of life. So at Heritage, we must honor God by affirming the upside-down nature of the gospel, that it truly is countercultural to American culture, to Western ideals and values. To truly live, you must die. Right? To truly gain, you must lose. To truly be first, you must be last. Right? To be exalted, you must be humbled. We cannot escape this heritage. This is the life and the teaching of Jesus. You are not the resurrection and the life. Jesus is. He's the only one that can say, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead obey. This means Jesus is more important than you. Jesus is more important than your plans. Jesus is more important than how you think you spend your time. Jesus is more important than what you want to do financially today. And if it's not, then you don't fear God. Today, if you need a refreshment for your soul, it is found in the gospel. It is found in this upside-down living Today, if you need security, it is found in God's wisdom, God's way, not yours. This means that you and I, our starting point today is just to say, okay, I am a fool. I'm a fool. I'm weak, and I'm sinful. I want to do me before God. That's my nature. 
This means that we put God's word first in all areas of life. If we put God's word first, we've learned in Mendred <laughs> by hearing God and doing what he says. That's how we're not men who forget what we look like when we look in the mirror. If you're looking for security, heritage, you will not find it by stockpiling for yourself. You will not find it. The tragic and ironic thing happens is the more you stockpile, the less you have. Well, you see the ruins of it on your property. You will find, though, that when you give out of your stockpile, your barn is never really ultimately empty. If you're looking for security, you won't find it by hoarding the labor of your hands. You will find it when you give out of that hoarding. You will find it when you give God the fruits of your labor. You will find it when you give God more weight than you give yourself and your agenda and your goals. You will find it when you lean on God's understanding more than yours. Take a look at Proverbs 18 for a moment. Listen to what Solomon says on this topic. He says, the name of the Lord, oh, I used to love this song as a kid. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they are safe. Contrast. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall is his own imagination. There are two paths before you today, men and women of heritage. Two paths. You can view the Lord as your fortification, your strong tower, your high wall, or you can view your wealth, your barn, your stockpile, your hoard as your fortification, as your high tower, as your strong city. But Solomon is clear, I think, here. Those who view wealth as their security, they think money is a too high of a wall for the thief and the robber to climb. I'm impregnable. The ancients believe that's why they built towers. They're safe. If there's a wall around our stuff, and if we're able to build a tower somewhere that we can run to when there's invasion and threat, we're going to be okay. Until humanity has developed siege tactics, right? <laughs> Point, there's no wall high enough. Ain't no mountain high enough, right? There's no tower strong enough for you to truly feel safe. Because the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is a strong tower. He's the high wall. He's the strong city. Not what's in your barn and not what you've buried in the backyard. If wealth is your security, your defense, your strong tower, then you've created security, Solomon says, from your own imagination. World of pure imagination. Wealth cannot be your true and lasting security. Only the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is a strong enough tower. Because wealth changes, Yahweh does not. Putting your hope in wealth, putting your hope in your ideas about wealth, above God's ideas about wealth, is foolish. It's a fabrication of your own imagination. So before we close, let's have some real application. Let's talk giving at Heritage. Over the years, you've been so hard-pressed on me. Let's talk more about giving. Some of y'all are mutes on this. Many of you are like, we need to talk more about it. We're getting there, right? If you notice over these last eight years, you can't search our Constitution. You can't search our bylaws. You can't search our affirmations. You can't search my preaching or teaching that says something like, we mandate tithing. Right? I think I've said tithing more today than I have in eight years combined. I think I have. 
Tithing was God's call to Israel. Tithing was the giving of the first figs, the pomegranates, right, to God. But we contrast this with what we saw the earliest Christians do. They gave joyfully. They gave sacrificially. Even in their poverty, Therefore, we believe that giving 10% could very well be a good starting point. But your work of honoring God with wealth does not stop there. Now, you may say, Pastor, I cannot provide for my daily needs and the daily needs of my family if I give 10%. Now, I'm not even talking about tithing right now. But a statement like this proves that you do not fear the Lord. A statement like this proves that you imagine wealth as your strong tower and not Yahweh, the eternal one, the timeless one. A statement like this proves that you are in the position and dictator of what wise financial ideas are. It proves that you lean on your understanding over God's. It proves that you put more weight on your ideas, more value on your ideas on money over God. It proves that you treasure wealth more than you treasure Jesus. And until you see God as your all-surpassing value, you'll continue, even today, after we first spoke about this, you'll still walk out of this place still unconvinced until you see that Jesus is that all-surpassing value, that his kingdom really is the treasure hidden in a field. And you will continue to dishonor God with your wealth, even if you have perfect attendance at this church, and if you serve on every single team of this church. One more scripture for you. Proverbs 8. I almost went to Romans 8 because I saw 8. Huh? Proverbs 8. Solomon says, Riches and honor, they're with me. Enduring wealth, righteousness, with me. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. My yield is better than choicest silver. So until you view God as your rich, your riches, your wealth, your righteousness, you will reject the wisdom of Proverbs that his yield, his fruit, is better than earthly silver and gold. Wealth will be weightier to you than a love for God. God will play some role. Religion will play some role in your life, but it won't be the all-surpassing value. Jesus will not be the treasure hidden in the field. The fool views wealth as a higher value than God. A fool views wealth as his strong tower, his high wall, and his fortified city. But for us at Heritage, we will affirm God is more important than paper bills and metal coins and digital currency. Amen? Because Jesus is our treasure. We display this by seeing 10% perhaps as a starting point. Not the end, but the start. So if you have strapped yourself in this nation that is the richest country in the world, that we are richer than 90% of the people on this planet, if you've strapped yourself financially, 
and 10% is an obstacle. It's a source of bitterness with God, and it's not a pathway. My encouragement for you, that the starting point for you today is simply to acknowledge, I have been a fool. That's the starting point. Forget about strategies, new decisions to make. Today, you simply start by saying, I am weak and I am a fool. You must put yourself under the fear of the Lord. You must lean on his understanding about wealth and giving and generosity over your understanding. And over time, you will grow to honor the Lord with wealth by giving joyfully and sacrificially and regularly, not perfectly, but regularly, and then you will experience Jesus be your refreshment and your security. Amen.